Hi, everyone, and welcome to Key Ideas. My name is Drew Collins, and I produce this podcast for Leela. The conversation Leela and Leslie began in the previous episode was so rich that it deserved two parts. In case you missed part one, go back and listen to that episode first so you can catch all those great nuggets of wisdom, and then come right back here for part two. I'll be back in just a bit to tell you about the course Leela and I just launched called How to Play Piano in a Band, which we're really excited about. But now, on to part two of Leela's conversation with Dr. Leslie McAllister. I say this often to my students. It's like, you are working really hard at the piano right now. And therefore, your body is working really hard. And it really is an oxymoron. The the harder you work at the piano, the easier... I have quotes. <laughs> the easier it needs to feel in your body, but th- it's right. such a hard balance for them to understand that. So yes, any any ideas that we can give our students to help them calm their nerves, but yes, also center themselves as mm-hmm. human beings. Good. Okay, good. So um, yes, I can talk a little bit more about what you were saying about the... Um, this exertion that we use when, Mm -hmm. when we really want to play well. Uh So there's, you know, there's tension, which is when we're tightening the muscles and then there's work or effort, which was when we're actually using the muscles to produce something. Um, And then there is sort of musical or artistic tension, which is where we feel these climactic moments Mm -hmm. of the music. And so you'll notice their shoulders start hiking up because they, they feel that tension in their bodies. Um, And really what they want is to be able to produce the sound with the least amount of tension and the least amount of effort. So right. the more force you exert, of course, that's going to affect the tone quality as well. And then also when we, um, you know, hug everything in and when we tighten, um, I think a lot of us don't realize, especially women really do tend to hold themselves to make themselves kind of as small as possible. Mm-hmm. And so learning to sort of you know, activate the midline, activate the core and stabilize the core, but then radiate out from that center midline and with freedom and with expansion. Mm. So in terms of um, students helping to calm themselves, you know, we can go back to the breath because again, I think it always starts with the breath and that's one of the greatest tools, not only of yoga, but of a meditation practice. And um, students don't actually have that practice of deep breathing. They might never have any other instance in their lives when they're told to take a few moments to take a few deep breaths and you know your high school student running in to their lesson after a long day of school and cheerleading practice and going from one thing to the next you know they need that moment before they can really focus and center and and really become aware of what sounds they want to produce just those few deep breaths can really be profound for them so in addition to the breathing, one of the reasons that, that movement is so helpful is because when we breathe, as we move, we begin to connect the mind and the body. And so we, we begin to notice how the breath moves the body and then also how the body affects the breath. So mm-hmm. something just as simple as inhaling, reaching the arms overhead, And then exhaling, just moving really, really slowly as you release those Mm -hmm. arms down by your hips. Something that simple can elicit, again, that state of being centered and being calm. And then that might lead to this continued, um, 
focus on, okay, what parts of your body feel tense right now? Maybe as they develop more body awareness, they'll notice, oh, I tend to hunch my shoulders up when I play. So maybe let me tense them up and see how that feels. And now I'm just going to relax them down away from my ears and notice how much better that feels. And then when the teacher comes by and, and taps their shoulders, they'll say, oh yeah, I remember that. I remember how good that feels to relax. A couple of things yeah. I, I, and that this could help teachers who just feel like, okay, my kids might think I'm wacko, uh, but <laughs> I'll say, you know, oxygen is good <laughs> and, and, you know, just making a little bit of fun and then doing it with mm -hmm. them might be mm -hmm. the way to do it because I just did that with you. You raised your hands over your head. I'm like, oh yeah, that felt so good, you know, and it wasn't a big deal, but just moving your hands up over your head. Wow. And then yeah. uh, the other thing is I've heard of uh, my, cause my students like to, their shoulders like to eat their ears. So we yes. talk about that a lot. And then I learned from somewhere, you know, putting a little beanie, um, beanie baby or something on their shoulders, just to remind them of, you know, their shoulder and, and that's what a great doing. idea. Yes, that's a fantastic um, so, idea. Because I think, you know, you're, you're so into yoga that of course, your students are gonna be yes, you know, she's so cool, I'm gonna do it too. <laughs> but for someone who's never done it before, and then introducing their students to it, you might have to come at it. Well, number one, you have to be sold on the idea, and be yes. ready to do it yourself, I would, mm -hmm. would be my guess. And then also, just having fun with it. Yes, I, I think having fun with it is the key. Yeah. And I will add that there's definitely a conversation that needs to happen between the parents and the teacher mm -hmm. as well to make sure that they're on board, uh, to make sure that they're okay. If you're going to be using physical touch with the student, oh, yes. you want that communicated mm -hmm. early and in advance. Um, and then maybe talk with the parent even about some of the poses that they might use and see what their reaction is to it. Maybe even have the parents sit in on the lesson. So everything is very open. Um, but I, I do also feel like yoga can really help with developing postural stability mm -hmm. and good alignment. So once students develop this proprioception is the word for it, our awareness of our body body and space, um, you know, when a child is developing, when they're very, very young, they develop the gross motor skills first. And so they really need to move in order to learn about proprioception and how their body moves in space. So balance poses help them with postural stability. And then those help with concentration. But once they come to the bench, then you can remind them about alignment, ears over shoulders, over hips. Mm -hmm. Or another way that I really like to use is the back of the head is in line with the back of the pelvis so that that can be a nice way of kind of doing your own internal check-in, right? Rather mm -hmm. than looking in a mirror or, um, or a video or trying to get that external um, mm -hmm. glimpse of what you look like, trying to develop that internal awareness, Internal check-in. I like that. Because, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, when students are preparing for a performance, I think that's when this really comes to play for them because now they know that this is getting serious and I've got to get my act together. And having some kind of routine for them before they play, you know, uh, can you speak to that? Like breathing a couple of times in a row and then doing that internal check-in? Check what would that checklist look like? 
Yes, absolutely. I think that pre-performance routine is so important in giving the student an opportunity to reflect, first of all, on how they're going to feel mm. before the performance and think about, you know, in performance, there's so many things that we really can't control. But one thing that we can control is the activity and the mindset, not the mindset, but the activities and the strategies that we use before we perform to prepare ourselves. And like with anything, the more you practice it beforehand, the more effective it will be in performance or right mm -hmm. before performance. Because if you're trying to breathe deeply for the first time right before you perform, it's probably not going to work very well. So right. You don't want to learn to swim in a stormy ocean, right? No. Oh, I like so, that. Yes. Uh-huh. <laughs> So um, with pre-performance routines, you know, I, one of the things I talk with my students about is the fact that we all sort of have our own uh, optimal performance profile. So some of my students really feel very anxious before they perform. They might have shaking hands or sweating or fast breathing. And so for them, they really want to focus on relaxing the body. So they might use a technique like, for instance, um, closing the right nostril. This seems a little strange, but research I, I, actually I, I know. I, this was blowing me away <laughs> when I was reading it. And then I was trying it yes. like, oh, that's kind of interesting. Yeah. So yes. It is interesting. Keep and going. I feel yeah. like people need to know about this. Yeah. Yeah. So when you close the right nostril with your thumb and you simply breathe in and out through the left nostril, that actually activates the parasympathetic response. So this mm -hmm. is the break in our bodies. We can uh, contrast that with the sympathetic nervous system, which is the gas, right? So the yes. parasympathetic response is the relaxation response. When we breathe in and out through the left nostril or... When we lengthen the exhalation as opposed to the inhalation, so for example, if we're inhaling for four, we could exhale for eight, that initiates that re rest and digest response, the relaxation response. So it lowers our blood pressure, it lowers our heart rate, our respiration, um, all, it just lowers the stress hormones in the body. So um, when you're focusing on breath work for someone who wants to relax, then they would do either the left uninostral or the extended exhalation. Um, and then they might use more forward folds. So in general, back bends or opening the front of the body are more energizing and confidence building poses, as opposed to forward folds where we close in. So if you think of flexion, forward flexion, we decrease the angle mm -hmm. um, of the body. So if we're folding or we're reaching toward our toes, that's forward flexion or forward bending. Mm -hmm. So um, if I'm in a, on a piano bench, I can reach my arms up overhead and then just sweep my arms down and lower my torso over my legs and relax my fingers to the floor. That's a forward fold. Holding that in stillness is going to be a more restful, relaxing pose. But then there are some students who feel that they want to be more energized and more confident. So for mm -hmm. them, you're going to have more movement, more flowing movement. And you might be using something like right uninostral breathing or lengthening the inhalation. So as an example of a simple backbend, they might reach their arms up overhead on an inhale. And as they exhale, take their arms to, I call it cactus, cactus pose cactus, because yes. I'm from uh -huh. Texas, yeah. but, uh -huh. or it could be called goal post, but uh -huh. my elbows, so my upper arms are parallel to the floor and I'm opening my heart and my throat up to the sky. So that could be a flowing movement. Inhale to reach hands up, exhale to make that goal post or cactus position and move back and forth between them. Oh, I like that um, cactus one. I, I try and do that more and more at my desk too. Just feels good. 
It does feel good. And it really contradicts the position that we take through most of our lives, which is this flexion. We're hunching forward over our computer, over the piano, over the phone when we type. All of that, when we drive, all of that involves flexion. And so we need to find ways to open up the front of the body. Mm-hmm. If, if they're, they're considered heart opening poses really for good reason, because they do help you to be more trusting and to be more emotionally vulnerable, in addition to feeling more confident. Well, that brings me to something that you have at your companion website to your book, music or yoga in the music studio. And this, the book is gold. And then the site <laughs> has even more gold. Uh, I feel like I yeah, struck a gold mine. And <laughs> one of the things that I thought was wonderful at the site was your labels. And so you label mountain pose and you call it Tadasana, which now I'm learning yoga. I don't know, yoga language, <laughs> yoga dialect. Where does it come from? Where does that I know yes. it's Sanskrit. Is it Indian? It is Sanskrit. So okay. it comes from ancient India. Uh-huh. Okay. It's when, and yes. Yes. And then you have my body and mind are grounded and balanced. So where did that come from? Where where are you? You're giving us names of all of these yoga poses, the Sanskrit uh, or the what the real name, the first name, and then a little definition or hmm, what, what, what would you call it? I would call it an affirmation. affirmation so okay. in fact, in the book, there is uh, the chapter on yoga for, there's a chapter specifically for adolescents or mm-hmm. developing musicians. And that's where I have a sequence where every pose has an affirmation. Mm-hmm. So we haven't really had a chance to talk about affirmations, but truly the science behind the way that we speak to ourselves shows that we have so much control over uh, the way we interact with the world based on the words that we use for ourselves. And usually we don't talk to ourselves in a very nice way. Yeah. So talking to yourself like you would talk to a younger version of yourself or to a child um, is much more helpful and healthy than the normal way that we talk to ourselves. It's just not like how we would talk to any friend probably. Right. Um, but yes, so each pose I gave an affirmation so that the teacher might actually say this affirmation while students are in the pose and then the students will be mentally repeating it to themselves. Mm, Uh, And a lot of those affirmations were taken from either sort of the benefits of the pose. So for example, with Tadasana or mountain pose, part of the benefits are to teach posture and alignment in a standing position. So teaching grounding by rooting into the earth and then radiating up and lengthening and gathering the spine up out of that rootedness into the earth. Mm. But some of the affirmations are also taken for um, really confidence-boosting performance affirmations, such as I feel prepared or I am excited to perform this piece because you want students not to talk to themselves about, oh, I feel really anxious, I feel really nervous. You want them to be giving themselves affirmations about their their ex- feelings of excitement and preparation because they have worked so hard. And mm-hmm. one of the things that I tell students is it's it's actually a good thing to be nervous because that means that you've worked really hard and you care about this performance. Mm-hmm. Nice. So, you know, if you didn't care, then I would be really worried if you were nervous mm-hmm. because that would mean that you just didn't really care about that much. And that is a question for you then is I I don't like to use the word nervous. But what else do you use? Because I do want to talk with my students, especially my anybody who's come to me as a new student. I don't know what it's going to be like for them to perform. If I've right. walked around, you know, alongside students for years, I know their mo. I know what you know 
what kind of coaching I might have to give them. But how do you broach the subject with a student? That's a great point. You know, you don't want it to be a surprise to them no. the first time that they perform. No. About and you don't want to let, symptoms. you know, like if they're not nervous and they're, oh, this is fun. I don't really want to ruin it for them. But I, I don't want them to have that deer in the headlight experience too, where like, oh, wow, you know, I really tanked and what happened? And I thought I was going to do so well. So yes, that's so true. And, and, you know, it's really interesting too, that a student can have these symptoms in different scenarios. So maybe they don't have it when they're playing for your studio class, but then it comes up when they go play for a judge. Right. So I, I think that it can be helpful to talk to them about, um, you know, the words that I like to use are words like excitement or anticipation. So if a student comes to you and says, I feel really nervous or I feel really anxious, then you can revisit that language and talk to them about what are some other words that you could use for those feelings. Mm. But if a student hasn't really talked to you about it, then you might need to prepare them just by saying, you know, how do you feel sometimes when you get up in front of a class to present something? Do you ever feel like you have, you know, butterflies in your stomach? Mm -hmm. Is that something that you tend to feel? And let's talk about some ways that you deal with that and some ways that might be helpful if you start to feel that way before the recital. And that way you're not necessarily, um, hopefully not leading them to be more scared about it, but at least feel like they have some strategies, mm -hmm. whether it's through deep breathing or through mindful movement that they can use if those feelings come up. I think the worst thing is when the parents come up to you and they say, oh my gosh, um, <laughs> Sally is really nervous. I know. Uh, yeah. They'll say it right in front of the child. <laughs> right, I know. That's just the worst thing that you can do right it's, now. Yes, it's planting <laughs> the idea that, oh, I have yes. to be nervous because if I'm not nervous, then this must not be good. Exactly. So, I don't know. I think it is a routine, giving them a routine, which I do with my students, but I'm, I'm going to add in some breathing and self-awareness. I like that word of, you know, what is it that is causing this now? And this brings me back to part of your book that I took notes on that the body really doesn't know because we've been around for a long time. The body does not know the difference <laughs> between a tiger or a performance, which I love. That makes so much sense. So that could be That's a right. way to frame it for your students as well. Is this is yes. just normal. This is really just normal. So yeah, explain exactly. that just a little bit. We'll be right back. Hi everyone, Drew Collins here. Leela and I are so excited to offer a new digital course called How to Play Piano in a Band. We noticed a lot of piano players run into roadblocks when it comes to playing in a band. Moving from solo performances to a band setting can be awkward. Reading chord charts and understanding chord symbols can feel like trying to learn a new language. And improvising away from the printed page can be a little bit scary. We designed this course to remove those roadblocks so that you and your students feel equipped and confident on the bench and ready to play in a band. To register and find out more, visit leelavis.com band. Again, that's leelavis.com band. As always, thanks for listening. Be sure to follow Key Ideas on your podcast app. And if you like what you're hearing, rate and review us. We'd love to hear your thoughts. Now, back to Leela and Leslie. This is just normal. This is really just normal. So yeah, explain exactly. that just a little bit. 
Yes. So I think that one of the things that can be really frightening for students is that it feels different to perform mm-hmm. in front of people. And so they'll always yeah. say to you, even in a lesson, they'll say, well, gosh, I played this perfectly at home. I don't know what <laughs> happened. And it's it's really because of that sympathetic response in your body. So yeah, like, as I said in my book, you know, your, your body doesn't know if it's fighting for survival yes. or if it's just playing a piano recital. So <laughs> it's just trained to respond in the same way. Um, and, you know, the only thing that we can do about it, I think probably the biggest thing we can do is acceptance Mm -hmm. because, you know, these symptoms are not going to go away, but what makes them, what can lead to um, derailing in a performance situation is when we become hypervigilant about the symptoms. Mm -hmm. So something like shaking hands, you know, maybe the audience does not even see these shaking hands, but for the performer, it might seem like they're totally out of control and they just, they're so um, aware of those shaking hands that then they become even more frightening. But when we practice acceptance, so one of the simplest ways that we can do this is if we know how our body is going to respond, we can say before the program begins, there you are shaking hands. I see you. (laughs) I I know you're here. Uh You know, I can still play well, despite you because I've done so in the past. Mm. And then we trust, you know, what we've done to prepare for that performance. And we're not trying to control it. We're not trying to get rid of it but we can accept and we can still play well, even with those symptoms, which probably are not nearly as apparent to the audience who's watching. No, no, I know. Because when I turn pages for, which I played live at Easter, which I hadn't done for a long time, and there goes my left foot starts to shake because I'm keeping that foot right over the Bluetooth pedal, you know, so it's tense already. And then it just does these weird things like, oh, there we go again. You know, (laughs) like I hadn't (laughs) had that in a long time, but there it is. So it it is interesting. And yes, I guess, yes, accepting that. um, And, and probably if I could manufacture some breathing as I'm playing, you know, Mm -hmm. just calming down just a little bit when those, what it's almost like a signal. Like, or, you know, oh, here this is, now what am I going to do? Might be helpful to me, but also to my students too, when those weird things happen with your body. Yes. So practicing deep breathing away from the music can be helpful, but even practicing breathing with the music. Yeah can also be helpful in performance. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I was joking with my student, he's playing the fantasy impromptu. And I'm like, so do you remember breathing as you played through that? <laughs> it's like, oh, yeah, um, I don't think so. And, you know, so that is something that I, I feel like it's a little bit on me as a teacher is helping mm-hmm. them take a breath and being aware of, you know, it would be good to breathe so you don't turn yes. blue. And your body could benefit from that extra oxygen. Right. And that's true because often in performance situations, you know, we get so much into our heads Mm. and we go back into this analytical mindset, which is really, truly the opposite of what we want in the performance situation where we want to engage this more holistic um, mindset where we're just conveying, where we're trusting that the body is going to execute in the way that it's been trained. And we're just allowing it to respond in that way. But when we try to control, when we try to analyze, that takes us into our brains when we really want to just be grounding into our body. And so the breath can help with that. Um, the mindful movement can help us to get that sensation of just just letting, I, I like to say, let the mind drop into the body. Mm. Um, and that way, mm. let go of that, you know, 
it, it used to be thought of as the left brain mindset, you know, where mm-hmm. you're just analyzing and, and drilling rather than and evaluating, right? So in performance, you don't want to be evaluating what you're doing. No. You just want to be allowing it to happen. Well, and it really is a monkey mind in some ways. Like, oh, there, yes. oh, here it comes. Oh, oh, oh are you going to do, you know, and then, oh, you missed it. Okay, now what? You know, like, okay, oh, yeah. that's right. Here, here comes the next one. Like, really, that's, uh-huh. that's how I, I remember being at some points in my yes. performances. Yes. And that's not fun. You know, that, and so why would you be excited about performing if that's the mind that you're going to come with? So that's right. Say that again. You move them, you move the mind into the body. You you drop the mind into the the mind into the body. Mm -hmm. Mm, Okay. But I think you're, you're right. And you said it earlier, it's about enjoying performing. It's about Mm -hmm. having fun while you're performing because why else would our students want to continue (laughs) making music, taking piano lessons going on into the rest of their lives as adults, continuing to make music, they're not going to want to if performance is something that, you know, is it's not fun and miserable for them. And I think a lot of them suffer from even a, a PTSD. I talked to someone who suffered from that in a conservatory environment, Wow, you know, where it just was so painful to perform and to, to play. And yes. so, you know, this... This idea of taking yoga to the piano bench or to the music bench really is, mm, I like the word grounding, but something for us to really think about as we move forward in these mm-hmm. coming years as musicians, but also as teachers, as you know, we deal with a lot of aftermath with yes at residuals. I think that's what I keep thinking about. You know, there's going to be right. some things that we can all learn from this, and um, having some techniques in our tool belt would be helpful. Like yesterday, a student came in, like, "Oh, my neck is so sore because he's always at mm-hmm. the computer." I'm like, "I bet your alignment isn't very good." <laughs> you know, so <laughs> I knew right. a few things to say to him, but I, you know, it would be nice to have a few tools to help them out as they move through these years. Yes, because often these repetitive stress injuries that they develop, they're not often solely related to what they do with their instrument, but they might be related to what they're doing on their computer at home or when they're taking notes in class and just the way they hold themselves throughout their daily lives, even the way they carry their backpack, you know, all of that can have an effect. Oh my goodness. Um, But yeah, you know, you've spoken so beautifully about trauma. And I do think that a, uh, the feeling of failure and performance can mm. be very traumatic to our mm-hmm. students. And so part of our job as teachers is really to help them to approach performance in a way and be prepared for performance in a way that is going to lead to a satisfactory result so that they don't develop that trauma around performance. I was talking to someone who was going to perform in a classroom situation. I said, okay, so do you play soccer? And she did. And I said, well, how often do you have a soccer game? Well, weekly. I'm like, okay, so how often do you have a performance? Um, I can't remember, you know, and that's the problem too, is we're not performing regularly to just practice performing and then being okay yes. with feeling, well, okay, I'll get next time I'll do better. You know, we don't, we don't have our next time until next year. And then we just live with that trauma of, failing for a whole year. So that's right. And, you know, that's one of the ways in which pianists in particular, most of what we do is solo work for a lot Mm -hmm. of us, you know, orchestral musicians, choral ensembles, they perform regularly with other people in sort of low stakes performances. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when students have collaborative experiences and, and accompanying, accompanying experiences, you know, these are other ways to get kind of low stakes opportunities to just perform more often. So they get used to how they feel in those situations. 
situations. Right. Mm, I like that low stakes because I've heard of low stake quizzes, which is really good. <laughs> just, you know, just to help students remember things, but low stakes performances. Mm, I like that. Mm -hmm. So your book covers so many facets of being a musician. I We could just go on and on. Is, is there something in particular that you want to cover or that you think is really important and sets your book apart from other books about music and performing? Sure. Well, one thing I would say is, you know, I do think that a lot of people, and this is, you know, as a faculty in residence, I've really been trying to get the students that are here at Baylor to do yoga with me. Mm -hmm. And it's actually been hard. You know, yoga is so popular right now mm -hmm. that I just assumed they would all be so excited about yeah. me offering these classes. And the number one reason is usually, oh, I'm not flexible enough. Yeah. Um, you know, you see in yoga ads, you see the skinny white woman. That's right. the image that you yes. think. And you, you don't necessarily see uh, people of color or people who have different body types or older people doing yoga, but truly yoga is for everyone, every mm. age. It can be adapted to any level, to any body, and it can provide benefits for whatever that individual needs. So in my book, I do talk about each of the chapters is dedicated to different age groups. So for mm -hmm. example, there are certain strategies that can be really helpful in early childhood when children need to really use yoga just to have fun and to associate it with storytelling and to you know learn to use imagery and they're playing and, and kind of fantasize about what animal they can pretend to be. Um, and they're developing again that postural stability and those gross muscular skills. But then in adolescence, and even for the professional musician, yoga can be really helpful for what we've talked about, alleviating anxiety, reducing susceptibility to repetitive stress injuries. And then as people get older, you know, they also find that decrease in the fine motor skills and um, sometimes need additional sort of cognitive benefits of yoga, and it can provide those as well. So each chapter kind of is targeted toward those different age groups and how we might, what strategies we might use as teachers to help our students students to um, use yoga in a way that's beneficial for them, but also, you know, for the beginner who's not, you know, as knowledgeable about all the different poses that exist in yoga. Well, that's what I love about your companion website is you give all kinds of video instructions and you give great tips on just things that you can do right on the piano bench. You don't have to be up and away from the piano bench, which might be more comfortable for most teachers if you don't yes. want to stand up and move and right. more comfortable for the students as well. And then you have curriculums. I couldn't believe it. Like you had <laughs> what an eight-week curriculum for an RMM class. And how would you imagine people using those or teachers using those? I think you would just need to take what would work for your particular class. Mm -hmm. So with the RMM class, the curricula there was designed more for a gentle yoga class. So for someone who's not, you know, as knowledgeable about yoga, even as a teacher, you want to be using poses that for a group of older adults aren't going to necessarily use a lot of forward flexion because that can be dangerous for osteoporosis. Um, process and for arthritis, but you want to be using a lot of standing poses because those actually teach good posture and alignment and lengthen the spine. Um, you know, a lot of older adults do want to, to sit, you know, they don't want to move back and forth between standing and sitting and lying mm -hmm. down. Um, so you can use chair yoga or, uh, you know, you can call it bench yoga because mm -hmm. you're on the right. bench. Yeah. So the curricula includes that, but it is also really beneficial because Standing poses actually have a neutral load on the spine, 
Whereas sitting on a bench actually has more of a load on the spine. So it actually Mm. can be um, harder to sustain good posture in a sitting position on a bench than it can be with standing. So that's one of the reasons the standing poses can be helpful for developing that good alignment that we then bring to the work that we do at the piano. Right. Yeah. No, I, I would think that if I was going to be teaching an RM M class, I would want to add in movement, but I would want to know what I'm doing, especially like you said, with, with older students who may have be compromised in some way. So yeah, I think that's exactly. so valuable. That's a really, that's one of, I don't know how many valuable assets that you offer in your book and your companion site. Well, thank you so much. Yes, Mm -hmm. I think that the key is just keeping it as simple as possible at the beginning. Mm -hmm. And, you know, all movement is good movement. So, Mm -hmm. you know, as we age, and we find this deterioration in our spine, you know, we need that compression in the spine, we need all these different types of movements, It doesn't have to be yoga, it can be just any kind of movement that feels good in your body that's going to bring that compression and that blood flow to the discs um, that have lost their venous blood supply. Um, all of that is useful in it. And it really does help with the body with the aging process and bring more health to the entire body. I think that's what's so unique about your writing and your book is that you believe in it yourself, but you're also very scholarly and you bring (laughs) in all the science with it as well. And that's why I think it's so powerful. So thank you so much for delivering such a wonderful book at a really amazing time where I really think that we could all benefit from yoga, practicing our yoga as we practice our instruments and play our instruments. So thank you so much for being here and let us know where we can find you, what, you know, so that we, we can all benefit from what Leslie has to offer. Yes. I just let me t- first say thank you so much for having me. Yeah. It's really been such a privilege and an honor, and I've enjoyed speaking with you so very much. Um, my website is just simply lesliemcallister.com, but my name is spelled L-E-S-L-E-Y, M-C-A-L-L. And you can also find me at the same website, yogamusicstudio.com. Um, I'm on Instagram and Facebook. I have a Facebook page for yoga in the music studio as well. So would love to meet some people that way and to tell them more about my work. And I have some yoga decks on Etsy. There is one adult musician, it's just called the Musician's Yoga Deck that you can find under Yoga Music Studio on Etsy. That's just a set of um, cards. Each has an individual pose, a list of benefits for the musician, and then specific pre-performance performance sequences, as well as um, dynamic warm-ups for the piano. And then I also have a set of children's yoga deck that a teacher might use for elementary level and preschool students as well. When I just grabbed those, I'm going to get the other set too. I'm going to have to do that. The children's <laughs> was so cute though, because they are alphabetical. Do they go A through Z? Do you have mo- moves for every alphabet letter or no? No. no. Okay. So I actually, I don't, but I, I did just include the poses that are really uh, effective with children that children can have fun with, but I have A through G. So through in other G. words, oh, nice. every musical yes. pitch nice. <laughs> has nice. a matching yoga pose. Uh-huh. Good. Well, I can't wait to get those. They're coming directly to me very soon. So uh, thank you again, Leslie. And we look forward to learning more from you. And yeah, I can't wait to go check out your Facebook page. I didn't know you were on Instagram. So I'm going to find you on Instagram. So thanks again. And all the best to you and all your wonderful work. Thank you so much. 
Head to the show notes at leelavis.com slash key ideas to find links to Leslie's book, her site, and her yoga decks. And we'd love to hear how your yoga practice is coming along. I leave you with this quote found in Leslie's book. It's from a well-known yogi. Here's the quote. Yoga is not about self-improvement. It's about self-acceptance. I'm Leela Viss, breathing with intention as I see you in the trenches. Thank you.